Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Joining us on today's show is an editorial producer for both Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. More importantly, a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast. David Kane joins the show today to help me both recap the WTA 500 in Chicago and discuss where the race to the WTA year-end finals in Guadalajara stands entering this week's action in Indian Wells. We discuss where Chicago's place should be on the WTA calendar moving forward. Of course, so much credit needs to go to Kamal Murray, the entire team in Chicago, putting on a 125, 250, and 500 level event all in the same summer. Certainly, Chicago feels like a city pro tennis should be in moving forward. We also, of course, discuss the action we saw on court in Chicago, in particular, the form of Garbine Muguruza. It's been a fascinating 2021 for her. So many what-ifs. David and I discuss those as well as her form entering the season's home stretch. We also discuss the player's best position to qualify for Guadalajara and so much more. Offer a few uh, predictions, of course, along the way. It is a fascinating conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course. Before we get to that, just want to remind all of you that the reason these podcasts are made possible is because of the support we get from you, because of the support we get from our Patreon family. Of course, we are rocking and rolling on our other shows as well. Mini breaks, recapping all the action day in, day out. We've also, of course, got Cracked Interviews podcasts, hearing from some of the players who competed last week in San Diego, have had the chance to speak with a bunch of coaches from the college tennis world as well of late and be on the lookout for our 2022 season preview content coming oh so shortly. But of course, all of our content available at CrackedRackets.com. With that said, though, you came here to hear about who you should be watching for on the WTA side as we approach Indian Wells. So with that in mind, let's get to my conversation with the one and only David Kane. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
joining us on the podcast once again today to recap last week's action in Chicago and talk about the race to Guadalajara that is heating up on the WTA Tour is a returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. You know him as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com. Of course, you may know him as the proprietor of the Vesnina Beat. You know him as our friend David Kanyev over on the streets or, of course, our friend David Kane. David, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? Sasha Groskovic, привет, как дела? Very happy to be here. I've been very bored without as much uh, Elena Vesnina to cover in the last couple of months, but it's given me time to cover Chicago. And But I, I will warn you, as we discussed before the podcast, to not take some of my predictions too seriously. I have already penciled in on Shaber to win Guadalajara. She is not qualified yet. And right after I tweeted that, she did not win another game in the final against Garbini Muguruza. So every, as always, take everything with a grain of salt. The DK is not short for DK Sportsbook, but that I would recommend <laughs> our good friend, Kale Hammond, for the, uh, the betting beat. Uh, all, all of which say very happy to be here. You know, clearly you've used these past few weeks to work on your Russian. I hope people can get subtitles on podcasts. You're going to need it for that first sentence. But no, I. to your point, I got old takes exposed for the first time, which I have to say I was flattered about. Like I, I think that is a win in terms of the long term that someone was like, hey, put this up there. And it was after the Alex Vera-Djokovic match in the semifinals because I tweeted after last year's year-end finals. I was like, man, if Djokovic drops off even 5% like physically, I don't know if he's going to get like over you know, 21, 22 maybe, but is he going to get to 23, 24 slams? I don't think so. Of course, he goes on to win the next three slams to start the 2021 season. He makes his fourth final. The calendar slam is in play, and that's when someone decided to old takes exposed me. It felt like a win when Medvedev beat him in the final. I was like, see, I told you guys. I was like, it it might not happen. But nevertheless, I feel your pain. That said, uh, it it is heating up to be one exciting race to Guadalajara. And, of course, we've got one major event left on the calendar, the 1,000-level event starting Thursday in Indian Wells. want to talk on today's show about some of the players to keep an eye on, those players still alive in the race, how their form, uh, what sort of form they're carrying into Indian Wells, the players we think may end up with those final few spots. But before we do that, let's talk about this past week's action in Chicago and more more broadly, just what Kamal Murray and the entire team in Chicago has been able to do this summer. I believe it was three different 125K or higher level events they were able to put on over the course of the North American hard court stretch. And obviously to get a 500 level event this fall, it speaks to, I, I suppose, the work they put in and getting in a successful bid and just being able to host a 500 level event. But It was also a tremendously successful event. You look, I believe all of the top 16 seeds were top 50 players. I think at one point you had eight players in the top 20 race uh, to Guadalajara, all playing a post-US Open 500-level event. Now, of course, it certainly helps when Indian Wells is the next week. But, I mean, David, we saw players travel from Ostrava over to Chicago to play this event, and it just feels like these Chicago events are here to stay. I'm curious if you if you felt that sort of vibe as well. I, I do think, overall, you look at the three events, how can you not chalk them up as a win? It sort of feels like the example, uh, classic example of if you build it, they will come. And I think, <laughs> you know, in, in this pan, post-pandemic, mid-pandemic era in which we find ourselves, the one thing that has remained consistent is that the players are really eager to play. And if you put on a tournament for them, they will come. And, and that has been 
very much the case through the tournaments in Chicago, especially at the 250 and the, the 500 level. Alina Svitolina played both the 250 and 500. She liked it so much, she played it twice. Um, she thought it was so nice, she played it twice, in fact. Um, <laughs> Winning the winning the 250 and, and having that uh, win streak snapped uh, against Ons Javor, eventual eventual finalist. Um, yeah, just a really phenomenal field. We got to see some really two really good champions across the um, the two Chicago events in Svitolina and Muguruza, and two really good finals. Svitolina against Cornet before the U.S. Open, and then coming back right after to play it again. It's going to create an interesting wrinkle when if and when the you know stalwart asian swing comes back into play how that will affect these fields but especially based on where they are in the calendar chicago is not a far flight from new york city on either end so it would be interesting to see who continues to commit to these tournaments just how good of a taste was left in the mouths of the players based on the accommodations and everything that goes into making the perfect tournaments but um overall really impressed that they were able to put it together sort of seemingly you know in, in with 20 with very little notice 24 hours notice uh compared to some of the tournaments that we've seen you know week in week out over the years but yeah very impressed and, and congratulations to the team as they say yeah, no, I it was, well, first of all, for the rest of this pod, it, you said, you know, own Shabur eventual finalist. I thought you were going to say own Shabur eventual finalist and future Guadalajara champ. And I was like, I think that's how I'm going to refer to her for the rest it, of this show. It's implied. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> but it was funny because during the Ryder Cup, I saw a Garbin Muguruza appearance. And I was like, there is no way Garbin Muguruza is spending a weekend in Wisconsin just casually. I was like, well, I was like, I'm missing something here. What's going on? Obviously, she's supporting John Rahm, Sergio Garcia, two fellow Spaniards who are competing in the event. But then I was like, oh, it's because she's competing in Chicago this week. I was like, it makes so much more sense now. And yeah, to your point, I mean, even the 125K they put on, that's Emma Raducanu's last loss. And obviously to get a final between her and Clara Tawson, two of the six best teenagers right now on tour, maybe even two of the three best teenagers right now on tour, all three events produced high quality. They had high quality fields. They had high level results. They had intrigue, drama, uh, everything you look for in a 500 level event. But to your point, something you said early on that really stuck with me if, if you host the event, the players will come. Our favorite event, Ostrava, incredible field this year. Incredible field. And to see so many of those players fly directly to Chicago. And, you know, Annette Conteve won one match and then she withdrew. And you can understand that because she was the winner over in Ostrava. But to see, you know, again, the benches of the world and all of these players who are in the race to Guadalajara commit to playing both events. I just... It was fascinating, and I, I do wonder if part of that is a byproduct of, look, the race is open this year. Will Barty play? Will Osaka play? That's something we'll talk about in the future, and you know, if the top eight spots are a little bit more solidified, will we see this sort of commitment from all of these players in future years? That's a, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good one to ask, but um, sorry, I just called my own I'm happy to answer good. it yeah I was gonna say and I apologize for calling my own question good but it is the question in terms of a scheduling standpoint but I didn't really think about it like that and I'm, I'm glad you brought up this framing there is no Asia swing this year all of those events canceled and Tumani Cario wrote a fantastic piece at the end of 2019 discussing China in particular's commitment to the WTA financially he also explored the ethics of that financial commitment and if you haven't read it I think you can still go google it and find it at the Guardian um, but normally the WTA would be heading that way the ATP would be heading that way now obviously this year they are not but to your point 
does this Chicago event stay in this place on the schedule? Do they give them a 500 bid with the luxury of changing weekends? That's a question, David. I'm curious if you, you know, you're a former W, you formerly worked for the WTA. Obviously, you are ensconced on the WTA beat. Where does this Chicago event go from here from a scheduling standpoint, even before we talk about the on-court results? An interesting question. I think, obviously, the fact that Chicago has proven an ability to host 125Ks, 250s, and 500s gives them a degree of versatility that they can bring to the negotiation table. I think based on, if you assume that China comes back next year, I think it would be tricky to have a 500 at this particular week because I think people would at this point be heading for your Wuhans, your Beijings, your Guangzhou's. So I think that would be tough to have a five. I think the fact that just based on the way everything is fallen and that Indian Wells is where it is in the calendar this year, it, it made sense to have a 500 in Chicago right after the U.S. Open. But I do think there are possibilities, you know, you know, San Jose is, is still a fairly new tournament. You know, that's that's a 500 that, that could potentially, you know, sit, the city open recently left uh, Washington, D.C. for the women. So that's another opportunity on the schedule. I think you could see Chicago really anywhere kind of fitting in as sort of a pre-U.S. Open summer tournament, um, even potentially after the fall as a two, you know, after the U.S. Open as a 250. I think there are a lot of places you could potentially see it. But to your point again about the race, I mean, I was talking to Elena Rabakina after her quarterfinal. And I think I think it's pretty clear that a lot of these women are operating under the assumption that Barty and Osaka will not play Guadalajara, mm-hmm. which is two more spots that mm-hmm. are open for players to potentially reach the top eight. Rebekina is um, ranked 23 uh, as of last week in the race. I haven't checked where she moved up having reached the semifinals in Chicago, but they're all really hungry to make that top eight. There's a lot of prize money. There's a lot of points on the line that will stay on your ranking for an entire year, um, much like the uh, the 2019 Indian Wells points. They just down forever. Um, <laughs> so I think it's just everyone is really high. And I do think, I mean, I don't think the players are entirely happy to go from Ostrava to Chicago, but they're willing to make that sacrifice because they feel like, you know, the 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 payoff is really tremendous for them. And, I, and again, yeah, I think there's just, there's never been a more wide open field. I think Marketa Von Drusova, who was ranked um, 38 in the race last week, I did the, the calculations. If she were to win, if had she won Chicago and Indian Wells, she would be firmly ensconced in mm-hmm. the top eight. So I think really the, the, the door will start to close after Indian Wells is on Jabort pointed out uh, after her match that you know it's all going to come down to Indian Wells the thousand points to the champion a big opportunity for those players but I think that what they were able to do in Osterba and Chicago is a testament to just how much everybody wants to be at the first WTA finals in two years yeah and again that is something we are going to focus on here on today's show I do just to finish the Chicago thought and to talk about the tennis we saw there a I know the WTA kind of already does this, but it's been emphasized in the ATP strategic plan. And certainly uh, if the WTA, I I guess, again, they're already doing this. But this idea, you know, Indian Wells, Miami, they're two-week events. Do you go to Chicago for the second week and say, hey, do you guys want to host the 250s both in that second week of Indian Wells and that second week of Miami? You may not get the best fields, but the week is yours. Is that an option for Chicago? Or I feel like they are looking for a little bit more shine because it is a big city, major market, and the ability to draw high-level uh, high level sponsors, high-level uh, – high degrees of fans there. Like I, I do feel like throwing Chicago into a second week of a Masters event, it's just – I feel like that's selling it short. I feel like Chicago could have a bigger place in the calendar. Yeah, I agree. I mean I, I think based on how tournaments run the second week of slams, I think typically you don't get – 
a 250. So I yeah. think you'd probably see a 125K, if anything, the mm-hmm. second week of a major or a master's. So I think, yeah, I don't know if that's something they want to settle for. I mean, if you get another Radicano Towson <laughs> final, then, you know, maybe you end up, you know, taking some of the shine off of your master or major, depending on who ends up making the final of that tournament. Um, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting, but I think that's really a testament to Kamel Murray and the team that they were able to really show that they can pull off any kind of tournament and have some have people talking about it. I mean, the fact that now the Chicago 125K is sort of a footnote in this greater story of Emma Raducanu is is again the fact that they were able to get her to play. She took that wild. Uh, she, I don't know if she took the wild card or if, or if she the fact that she was there. You know, <laughs> like it's just you know she could have played potentially a bigger event, maybe sought a bigger wild card at Cincinnati or something, but decided to play in Chicago, and it obviously worked out for her. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think it's just the sky is the limit for for that event and for the that organization team it makes me so excited that you remember the chicago 125k as fondly as i do this is why you're always a great guest for this podcast because we could probably do someday that'll be an oral history when clara tossin's got 12 grand slam titles and radicanu's got 10 and they're like no one saw tossin having more than radicanu in the end how did this happen it'll be like let's talk about the 2021 Chicago 125K final and how that was actually the moment, the inflection point for both of their careers. But yes, I, again, it, it's a, it is a credit to those teams and just the tennis we saw in Chicago. I should say personally, as someone who grew up in Southeast Michigan and our high school season was in the fall, watching these top players deal with Midwest fall conditions, mwah. Like, that might have been my favorite part. That is maybe the nerdiest thing I've ever said. But that might have been my favorite part of this event. But outside of that, was it the most rigorous run to the title for Garbine Muguruza? You would certainly say not. The fact that she got withdrawals from both uh, Victoria Azarenka and Marketa Vandrusova on her pathway to the title certainly helps. And yet, you look for Muguruza who earns the three-set victory in the final over Own Shabur, comes back from a set and a breakdown, and she was down 1-0 in the second set. Then she takes a 2-1 lead only to go down 3-2. Felt like Shabur had captured the momentum from there. Muguruza races off to earn her second title of the season. You look for her now overall, 37-14 and and, uh, on the year. That's a 725 uh, win percentage. Two titles, four finals, career highs for her in both hold and break percentage. She's the only only WTA player right now to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage. So the top 10 club, it's just her. It is interesting to know, David, she's 7-8 and eight against the top 20, 3-7 and seven against the top 10 this year. That said, she'll rise to number 6 in next uh, this week's, I suppose, WTA rankings. That's the highest she's been since July of 2018. Look for Muguruza now. I believe she's, I want to say, 27 years old here this season. That's a prime. You list, You think about it. Career high and hold percentage. Career high and break percentage. We saw this level from her at the start of 2020 as well when she made the final of the Australian Open. On the age curve, it suggests this should be the prime of her career. On the statistics curve, it tells you she's playing the best tennis of her career. This is her first WTA 500 title, and I forget who tweeted this out, but shout out to the person that did. She, it might have been Ben. But so not shout out to Ben, but she's won nine titles in her career. Seven of them have come on hard courts. The other two are, of course, the two slams she's won, the French Open and Wimbledon. But there are just some inflection points this season. Match point on Osaka. Whatever happened down the home stretch of that second set versus Krejcikova at the U.S. Open. 
of course, the injuries she got in, in Charleston meant we didn't really get to see her best in throughout the clay court season. But I just feel like Garbin Muguruza is in the prime of her career right now, David. And I just – I continue to think she will be a factor. She is she is the X factor to me because if you see Garbin's best, like she, she can just blitz through anyone. First of all, that was a match – for Lope tweet, I saw that as well. It was sort of like uh, symptomatic of of the the career of Carbini Muguruza to see those titles lined up like that, and how infrequently she has actually won the title at the end, but has managed to win some really phenomenal titles across her career already. Um, it's interesting with statistics like that. I feel like I should have felt more confident in her this week heading into Chicago, and yet, just based on those perhaps those inflection points, the injuries. The fact that it all comes down to the idea that she just doesn't seem to get the job done at a lot of these tournaments. I did chuckle a little bit at her road to the final because it was like, of course, she would need this kind of help to be sort of airlifted to Guadalajara. Yes, if you look at the race, if you look at the top eight players of not only of this year, but who are currently active, she is certainly deserving and, and one of the most talented players on tour and would be a as much a favorite in Guadalajara should she get there as anybody else, but getting there has been the problem for her over the years. And so getting there metaphorically and literally not just talking about WTA finals, but um, you know, getting Jabor, getting that revenge on her um, cause she beat her at Wimbledon now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was one of the, and, and after playing a really good first sets and felt like, okay, she's figured Jabor out. And then Jabor just ran away with those next two sets. And you thought, Oh, you know, this is just, <laughs> For a top player, you feel like as talented as Jabbar is and as great as she has been throughout the year, she is streaky enough that you would think that a player as experienced as Muguruza would be able to kind of ride out the wave and find her openings and take advantage and reclaim her momentum. And the fact that she couldn't do it at Wimbledon was very surprising and frustrating and perhaps a testament to the fact that she had been injured and not feeling the same confidence that she felt at the start of the year. That said, tremendously impressive that she was able to figure out in Chicago without the match play that you would have thought that she would have needed to get into gear, that she was able to turn around so emphatically and and play some really great points, um, as I saw in the highlights, um, to win that title. You know, she's got a good team around her. She's got Conchita Martinez, which I think everybody felt over the years was that missing key to unlocking her best potential. So I think she puts herself in really good position. She doesn't have the same pressure coming into Indian Wells to have a phenomenal week uh, in order to guarantee she makes the finals. Again, you know, without the added, perhaps added pressure of Barty and Osaka clamping down on two of those eight spots, it does seem like Muguruza is is one to watch to make that um, those last qualification bits. So I'm really pleased that she was able to do it. And I think, again, if she's there, in Guadalajara, she is very, very much a factor, but it's just, I feel like we're going to white knuckle it to the very end. <laughs> There's just a way Muguruza competes. It's not a tangible, I suppose, quality, but she just always seems in the hunt. And particularly on hard courts, you just look at her results this season, David, the, who the actual losses to, you know, her five losses through the initial hard court stretch. Abu Dhabi round of 16, she loses to Maria Sakri. I don't think anyone would categorize that as a bad loss. She then, in the warm-up event to Australia, makes the final, loses to Ashley Barty. Whatever, not a bad loss. Australian Open, fourth round, has match point, loses to eventual champion Naomi Osaka. No shame in that loss. Finals of Doha, loses to Kvitova. That's fine, because she goes and wins Dubai the next week. Then in Miami, she loses an ex- a fascinating three-set match to Bianca Andreescu. Andreescu, Kvitova, Osaka, Barty, Sakari. 
I mean, Andrescu and Miami counts in this group as well. Miami and Drescu, I should say, those are five of the ten. Ba- like though that form, those are all top ten quality losses. And then you look for her, you know, down the home stretch season uh, of the season in Tokyo, she loses to Rabakina. I don't think that's a bad loss by any stretch of the imagination, particularly second half of the season. Rabakina, two losses for her in uh, to Krejcikova in Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. The outlier, I suppose, is the three set loss she had to Sinyakova in Montreal, but. That's one loss. One loss on hard court this season that you scratch your head about and in the Sinyakova loss. That's it. Like, she has been that good. She has been in the mix. And this is how, you know, it. we can transition into the year-end finals talk is you look about it, she has sort of solidified her spot right now. And let's just, you know, assume for the sake of this part of the conversation that Barty is playing. Barty's in first. She, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, Pliskova, they've all clinched their spots in the event. That's four locked in. You then look at three, the three players who are above the 3,100-point threshold. You've got Maria Sakari, 31.47, Garbine Muguruza, 31.41, Iga Sviantek, 3106. They all have about a 350-point lead on Naomi Osaka, who's in eighth, but let's assume she's not going to be playing the competition. They all have about a 450-point lead on Onjabur, who would currently slide into that eighth spot. That's pretty comfortable. To gain 450 points on uh, for, for Jabour to overcome that deficit on a Muguruza, that would take, what, Muguruza losing first round and Jabour making quarterfinals or semifinals of Indian Wells like I guess that might be uh, but it, I guess that might be in the cards but that means you know Shviantek also has to beat her and I, I do feel like Garbine has sort I don't want to say it's clinched but she's sitting she's sitting fairly pretty like she she's in a very good position here to qualify for Guadalajara yeah I agree I mean the fact that Barty is not playing Indian Wells feels very telling to me you know if you're looking at you know an imaginary flight itinerary you think okay I fly to California I fly to Mexico, I fly home. I think the fact that she's not playing Indian Wells makes me think that this is sort of it for party this season, but it is it is disappointing in that sense because reading off that those top seven names, and if you include Osaka or even Jabor, you think, wow, that's actually a really good top eight representative of the best names of the season, but that is probably not the top eight we're going to get. And I mean, you look down, I mean, even if it is like a Mertens at, at 10, Pavlyuchenkova 11, Svitolina 12, even Coco Goff uh, 13th, Jessica Pagula at 14th. I mean, these are all credible names, you know, and, and again, representative of their really good form over the last year and even two years. Um, but yeah, I think, I think for Muguruza, she should like her chances if she gets into, um, into the finals, because I think that, you know, we could potentially see that confidence, that good health, you know, the and that really impressive form that we saw uh, at the beginning of the year. But the difference will be she'll need, you know, as impressive as those six, five or six losses were, those were five or six losses where she could have potentially won five or six of those matches and would have had a very different year. And we wouldn't even be talking about her qualification chances. She probably would have already crossed the, the threshold mm-hmm. um, alongside the top three uh, earlier At the in same the year, time, so. though, 37 and 14, like even with some of those losses where you're just like, how did you lose that Krejcikova match or, you know, get over the finish line in the Osaka match and then Australia's wide open. And by the way, what does that do for the Naomi Osaka story here in 2021 if Osaka would have lost that match? It's it's one of my favorite. Again, that had she not gotten 
injured in Charleston. It's a big what-if season for Garbine Muguruza, despite the fact that she went 37-14, and 14, that she's made four finals, that she's won two titles. And again, at 27 years old, it does feel like this is the prime of her career. And we already know her best is good enough to win a Grand Slam title. But no, I, I agree with you. I thought the way she, the adjustment she made against Jabour in the finals, Owns was so f***ing good. I'm sorry, like I... I try not to swear as much anymore, but I don't know what else to how else to describe it. She was that good uh, at the beginning, you know, opening stages, first 45 minutes of the match in Chicago. And to watch Muguruza make the adjustment of, you know what, I'm playing down the center. I'm not giving you anything in the outer thirds anymore because I just think I can beat you at the tennis stuff. It's when we start to bring in the intangibles and you play your drop shots and you get to mix in your variety that I'm losing. To see her make that adjustment and also start taking that slice out of the air, hit the swinging volleys, do the things that she can do on a hard court, you combined her weapons with just her length and just, again, the way she thinks out on the court and competes. Garbine Muguruza walks onto the court and believes she is the best player in the world in every match she plays. And I do think there's value in that. And just, she was she was excellent. So, I will I be picking Garbine Muguruza to win the 2022 Australian Open? I'm not going to say no. That, 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 I suppose, is where I'm at right now uh, with her. But I, I suppose I know that's a solid 12 minutes on Muguruza. Any final thoughts on where she is entering Indian Wells? I know – I feel like traditionally Indian Wells has been, you know, so-so place for her. But slow, outdoor, hardcore, I, I kind of like those conditions for Muguruza. Yeah, I think, you know, in that sense, coming off of a 500 in Chicago without having to play a tremendous amount I think is sort of yeah. the best – of all worlds for Magruza. She's confident, she's fresh, she's healthy, she's hitting the ball well. And I think, you know, again, the match against Shabor is, a, is an interesting one also, just like you said, from a tactical tactical perspective, because it really does potentially write the book on Jabor. You know, I think, you know, when you're this player who's coming up now challenging all these top players and people are fig- trying to figure out how to beat her, this is an interesting guidebook now for those who may feel at, at some points overwhelmed by the variety, by the drop shots, by the fact that she can just sort of pick shots out of the air um, and really play some peak tennis. So I think that how Jabor is um, handled, I guess I should say in the next couple of weeks will also be interesting because will players pick that up from the mm-hmm. way that that match ended? Because should she, should she have won Chicago? I think she would have come into Indian Wells in a completely different state. And people really probably would have started to ask that question. How do you beat this player who's playing so well? She has won the most matches of anyone this season, which for someone who is, so streaky is both, you know, a testament to how well she's played this year and also sort of a damning indictment of how little <laughs> some of the top players have played throughout the year that, that that she should be the most consistent player of the year. But yeah, all all credit to Magrusa for figuring it out. And, and I think, you know, if she can to be in this prime that that the st- that the stats are implying that she is, she does kind of need to start winning or at least making the mm-hmm. finals of these tournaments. So I think that would really change the narrative on her. Whereas right now I still feel a bit unclear and uncomfortable i still feel robbed that she lost that crutchy copa match and not robbed by like oh the tactics blah 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 blah, blah. i'm past that i don't really care about that it's just to watch her play sabalenka in a quarterfinal oh we were we were robbed we were robbed we that would have been i mean it was already an exciting us but like okay here's sorry i pandora's box open it's good to have you back david uh kanyev i'm just gonna go with kanyev that's the easier one to do but can you like who would have been better suited to be like 
oh, you're 19 years old? I'm going to crush you to Layla Fernandez, then Garbine Muguruza. Or like, please, Emma, like this. No, 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 no. It's my time. I just feel like there's a there's a mental component to Muguruza. And maybe I'm projecting here because this isn't something you can qualify or really quantify. But I do think – I just think there's an edge to Muguruza when she's playing her best. She just goes down swinging and it's on her terms. And that's what – I guess to see the adjustment she made against Jabour, that's why I do think, okay, I, I think that Krejcikova match really pissed her off, where she's like, how did I lose this? I should have won that U.S. Open, and that's why I think she's particularly dangerous entering 2022. It's just, I do think there's that edge as well, where to your point, she's like, I'm in the prime of my career. I'm playing my best tennis, and I let that one get away from me, and I do think that's a little chip on the shoulder entering 2022. I mean, Muguruza does play her best when she's angry. I mean, the yeah. infamous 25 languages comment after the 2017 French Open goes on to win Wimbledon. I'm not as confident that she would have won the U.S. Open if she'd gotten past Krejcikova. She was down a set in 4-0 before that even started with all the, the theatrics. And she did lose a Grand Slam final to a teenager um, in Australia. It was Sophia Kennan, 19 yeah, in Australia. Or 20 or at she the 20? time. And yeah, a, a she very young 20. 20. Yeah, very young Yes, yeah, so I mean, I don't know about that. But <laughs> I think if anything, the loss was probably in many ways, maybe perhaps better for her than the win because, you know, to kind of be overwhelmed by a Layla Fernandez potentially in the semifinals or even by an Emma Ronacano in the final. I don't know if that would have had the same oomph. You know, she comes off feeling a bit of righteous injustice, righteous anger, and she goes on and wins Chicago and potentially could do really well in Indian Wells. I think it's about replicating that kind of intensity in Muguruza that maybe she shouldn't have to necessarily feel wronged to play phenomenal tennis. Fair. No, okay. That's good. And Muguruza tied for sixth right now and wins, not necessarily by WTA level, but in terms of tennis abstract, you have the total wins on their board. Tied for sixth with Anaconia. I love that fact. Uh, 37 wins here on the season. But of course, with that in mind, let's open more broadly now on the race where things stand entering Indian Wells. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, four players have clinched their spots. Barty, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, and Pliskova. Now, it is worth noting, you know, Sabalenka with this COVID diagnosis, will she want to play Guadalajara? It will depend on how she's feeling. It will depend on, again, if it's if her game is at a point where it's worthwhile. So we talk about potentially two spots being open with Barty and Osaka now out of the race. And for the record, Naomi Osaka, eighth in the race right now, not playing Indian Wells. Jabour's got to win, like, one match. Merton's got to win, like, two or three matches. She's going to get passed by at least one person, likely, during this Indian Wells stretch. Uh, but you look right now at the race. Again, Barty, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, Pliskova, they've clinched their spots. You've then got Sakari, Muguruza, Shiantek, all above 3,100 points. Osaka's in eighth with 2,771. But if you throw her out of the race, you get Jabour with 2,685. And then there are less than 300 points separating uh, Elisa Mertens at 24, or excuse me, a little over, let's see, 312, we're doing math on the fly here, 70, nope, nope, 26, there we go, 326 points separating 10th place Elisa Mertens and 19th place Paula Bedosa-Jaber. Now, that is, you know, 350 points is what, quarterfinals of a 1,000-level event, I think, at, at certainly... It's an open race and for those final few spots. And I guess the place where we have to start with this race, and you've alluded to it, but do you think 
Barty doesn't play? Do you think Osaka doesn't play? Do you think where Sabalenka is now, will she not play this event? You know, yes, the race is already wide open, but will we have three additional spots uh, opening up because these players are just going to opt out of Guadalajara? Yeah, I would say I'm about 70% confident that Barty doesn't play Guadalajara. I'm about 95% confident that Osaka doesn't play Guadalajara. I think based on the fact that Osaka did not play um, here in Indian Wells, in California, where she is based, you know, is, is sort of a, is an indication of the fact that she wants to at least take the rest of the year off. I mean, she was certainly in um, quite a state after her U.S. Open loss and didn't know when she would play again. And I was a bit up in the air when that what that means. You know, I think you know with, with when you look at Osaka, you think, well, the Australian Open is in January, and if she misses the Australian Open, I think then we're in for a really long wait with Osaka. We, you know, she's she will be in no rush to come back for the clay court season. Okay. The the thing that started all of this, uh, in my opinion. So I think in that that sense. You, you're looking for her to come back in January. I think, again, Barty with the travel restrictions, you know, the, the pandemic, whether it's Barty and her travel or Sabalenka and actually getting COVID-19, you know, the pandemic continues to really ravage WTA narratives, WTA continuity. Um, that said, if and when Sabalenka recovers, I do think she'll, I do think she will play Guadalajara if she's healthy and able to, because even if she goes 0-3, I mean, that's a phenomenal amount of opportunity for points and money uh, that I don't see Sabalenka passing up. That said, I'm really disappointed that Sabalenka is not going to be able to play Indian Wells. I was so um, impressed by her reaction to losing to Leila Fernandez. I felt that this could potentially be a very emotionally shattering loss mm-hmm. for an emotional player who was making her second straight Grand Slam semifinal was the overwhelming favorite on paper to make the U.S. Open final win that title, win that slam. And she came out of it feeling really positive, feeling like, listen, I ran into opponent, an opponent that was peaking, is confident, has the crowd behind her. I did my best and I lost, you know, and I'm, I just wish there was another grand slam uh, this year that I could have had an opportunity to win, as she said on Instagram. And I, and I thought to myself, well, there is kind of another grand slam in Indian Wells. It's the fifth slam, mm-hmm. even though they don't like to be referred to as such. So that was an opportunity for her and just feeling like she was improving. She was making the adjustments she needed to, to be become the more comfortable top player and for her to not be able to be here as the top seed is really rough you can argue she only has herself to blame because she's been openly pretty skeptical of covid vaccines which would have at least drastically reduced the likelihood of her getting covid she didn't seem to be having any symptoms based on her instagram correspondences we'll see how that pans out over the next week and a half um for her but yeah a really rough one for her because i think this was such an opportunity for her to really rack up some points i wasn't really looking at her as potential year-end number one although some people were saying that that was in the cards should she win indian wells and perhaps do as what she needed to do in guadalajara but yeah it's it's a rough one for her and it just if it, in the state of mind that she was in it's tough to not see that sort of positivity rewarded yeah uh i the other thing that always sets me off in this is where social media is just a dark place it's just you you know who is obviously going to think man i should have gotten vaccinated i could have avoided probably this entire situation right now is arena sabalenka you know who doesn't need it pointed out by thousands of twitter people ready to dunk on her in this very moment as she's tested positive and going to miss out on the masters 1000 and everyone uses this as their opportunity to make the point well you should have gotten vaccinated and i suppose there's validity to that but the incessant dunking, I'm going to lose my mind, David. I just – that's when one of those moments I'm like, you know what? It's not the day for Twitter for me, Alex. It's time to log off and go watch some football here on Sunday. It's just uh, – I agree with you. It's just 
It's crushing because this is, by the way, the glaring example. You want to avoid this sort of situation, just go get vaccinated. And, of course, with the Australian Open, you hear conflicting reports that there, there will no longer be exceptions for athletes at the same time. I've heard they are considering exceptions still for the Australian Open and that there may be some leniency and just you may have to come a few weeks early and do a two-week hard quarantine. Now, not reporting that as fact as that's what's going to happen, but I know that option has been floated as an alternative to, you know, just not allowing unvaccinated players to play the event. But this is a shining example of why, you know, like if they do the two-week hard quarantine, just go to all those players' room and be like, hey, we're just going to give you dose one now. Like, does that work? You, you're here for two weeks anyways. You might as well do it. It's just uh, – what month are we in? It's been 18 months of this, David. Like, and we still – it's just – it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of the social media reaction, I think you're either in one of two camps. Either you know, have worked with Sabalenka or you just like her because you're a fan and you're yeah. disappointed or you're somebody who already did not like her. Yeah. <laughs> And you're, you know, looking for, you're kind of not happy, but you're happy for a reason to, you know, justify, oh, I didn't like her and she didn't, she was skeptical of vaccines and she ended up getting sick and it serves her right. So I think that's a rough position to be in. I have a lot of sympathy for these players who are not inundated with, you know, the appropriate kind of information that would make them perhaps realize that this was the correct option to take. You know, it's not like, you know, if they were living in the States, I would feel a little bit more sympathetic if they were just sort of an everyday person these people are very much have already been in bubbles they're surrounded by people who are in their own bubbles i think it's just it's a rough one and you definitely loud the players who have made the decision to get vaccinated it speaks to you know the fact they have good people around them giving them good advice um but yeah it's a rough one and yeah i i would hope that as many players as possible get vaccinated and i think the australian open you don't you know (laughs) it's an opportunity to really put everybody to the test, you know, do you want to miss a major tournament? And I think in that sense, most players would say no. You know, mm-hmm. I think we saw 18,000 New York City school employees get the vaccine under the threat of termination. So mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, it's it's something that a lot of people need to do. Millions of people have gotten the vaccine over the last six to eight months with no, mo- and the vast overwhelming majority have had no major side effects. And the, even fewer of them have gotten um, breakthrough, meaningful breakthrough sick hospitalization death so i think that's in that sense there's really only one option you know so i think um looking ahead to australia you maybe hope that they put the hammer down but i that's interesting i don't know if they will now yeah no first of all this is why we again love to have you on the show put more succinctly and properly than i could have ever so i appreciate that (laughs) b i'll tell you what having gotten my vaccine and i was team moderna Having free Wi-Fi everywhere I go now as part of my body has really helped my connectivity. It really has made me more productive. Like free Wi-Fi is the microchip that they put into the vaccine as part of your body that you get off of it. It's a plus, David. Like I, we're not talking enough about how great it is to have that microchip Wi-Fi now everywhere I go. So it's amazing. He's plus. kidding. He's kidding yeah. because this audio we will get promoted on social media out of context he is kidding i'm just saying like the ability to fly with wings now is freaking awesome no yeah that's ridiculous it's ridiculous yes i'm the same person 
I have always been, um, go get vaccinated. It's very, very I did, easy. I did love Maleficent as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but all right, with all that said, again, those are your clinches in terms of the players most in the mix. And this is where we can get a little funky and get creative here. Let's just start with the players who are, I suppose, rising, the the best form of players who are still in contention. I have a, a short list of names here for you in terms of the contenders. And again, I just want to rate, read the names of people all within that 350-point-ish threshold of uh, where Iga Svantec is. So just quickly, I suppose, you're saying Bardi Osaka out. We're feeling pretty good about that. I know you gave them percentages. W- yeah, yeah, more than more, more than 50% confidence. So let's say then we have... I'm going to call Sviantec a lock. I don't think she's going to get passed. So we have six spots locked. There are really two open. In the six locks, Sabalenka, Krejcikova, Pliskova, Sakari, Muguruza, Sviantec. After that, we'll start with Onshabur, who's coming off of the final in Chicago. As you mentioned, she's the WTA Tour leader in wins this season. 43 wins for her. She won her first title, has made multiple finals this year, has made a quarterfinal at a Grand Slam, has been in the mix across surfaces she deserves to be in this conversation there's no denying that you want to look at the advanced metrics own Jabour right now eighth in overall elo rating seventh in terms of 2021 specific elo she's one of the i believe it's four players uh, excuse me three players to be in the top 15 club top 15 in both hold and break percentage well actually four players i've excluded serena from that conversation because it's such a statistical outlier but it also kind of is like hey when she plays she's still pretty damn good um but Jabour de Blanc's in this conversation, and I think many of us would agree the fact that she is now number 12 in the live rankings. That's where she belongs based on her talent this season. Again, she's got about a 200-point lead, a little over 200 points on Elisa Mertens, and obviously as such about a 500-point lead on Paula Badosa Jabeur all the way down in 19th. You feel pretty good about her? You think she's making that? Is she in spot number seven? Jabour? Yeah. I was I was just busy thinking about the idea of Paula making the, I know. the finals. I got a little distracted. Um, talk about something that would be phenomenal for tennis and amazing for me. Um, no, I think Jabour, again, I think a lot will turn on this. I mean, she's put a lot of pressure perhaps on herself that, you know, everything is going to come down to Indian Wells. She had a good philosophical, you know, argument about, you know, either I'm meant to make the finals or this is a sign that I need to, you know, take some time off and refresh and get ready for next season. So hopefully she takes that approach and doesn't put too much pressure on herself. I think she's pretty, you know, resolute in the fact that Indian Wells is going to determine whether she makes it or not. You know, I think, again, had she come off of Chicago with a sort of an emphatic win over Garbini Muguruza, it would have really change the tenor of the conversation around her this is you know not just a streaky talented player this is someone who is you know belongs among the top uh, echelon of the game and the fact that she took such a rough one um to Muguru's in that final set may have her feeling a bit off kilter do I belong with these top players you know am I kind of am I the sideshow or am I the main event I think that's sort of the question that a lot of these players rank between 11 and 30 grapple with you know when they're con- contesting against the top 10 um, am I someone who can pull off this win on occasion or am I someone who, you know, uh, made for greater consistency? So I think, you know, a slow, hard court, I kind of do think that will favor her in a way, you know, she will have the opportunity to, you know, uh, construct points to her liking and it'll just be up to, you know, players to kind of take the racket out of her hands if they're able to, um, 
with that said, I mean, she's been the most consistent player of 2021. So to bet against her would seem to be uh, to your detriment. Um, the the player that I'm I'm most looking to right now is would be to be honest at number 12, Alina Svitolina, former champion, someone who plays really good tennis when people are doubting her. And I think there's there have been some doubts around her over the last couple of months. How she's been ranked where she's been ranked over the last two years, sort of based largely off of 2019 points, hasn't been able to replicate that 2019 form tremendously in the last two years, but played really well in Chicago, came perilously close to be beating Leila Fernandez in the third set tie break uh, in the quarterfinals. I guess really the closest player to beat uh, Fernandez in her run um, to the um, to the final, obviously before Raducanu beat her. Um, but I think that Svitolina I think, has that right amount of grit under her feet and is a good player at Indian Wells, made the semifinals in 2019, um, lost a three-setter to Andrescu. So she's sort of that eighth player that I'm sort of earmarking to make a big push uh, in Indian Wells and, and isn't afraid of playing some, uh, doing some scrambling in the last couple of weeks to do what she needs to do to, to clinch that top eight. My only concern would be she did look physically beat up, Svitolina, at the end of Chicago. Heavy wrap around the thigh, and you could just tell she went up 4-1 on Jabour and just kind of lost her legs as that match progressed and the drop shots for Jabour, who, by the way, again, if you're a tennis player, go try and hit a drop shot return. Just try it. And she's freaking doing it against the best of the best, match in, match out. It's just... Owen Jabour's hands are second to none. It's ridiculous. And I I will continue to say, I think she's a sneaky good mover, David. Like, I do think her anticipation skills are so exceptional. And just what she's able to do in the outer thirds of the courts, other players can't do. And so I I do agree, Jabour. It's funny, you may have seen me bite my lip on the Zoom when you said she's the most consistent player of the season. I was like, eh. I think Sabalenka and Krejcikova would like a word with you because they would just, you know, like just. Disp- I, I, I was going by stats. Yeah, but <laughs> my, my my one foray into stats. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, I just go by dreams and starlight. Yes, if you're looking through the last, yeah, I would I would certainly give an edge to Sabalenka and Krejcikova if your metrics are great results at major tournaments yeah. for sure. But yes, I guess forty, but forty four matches for Japan. Yeah, forty three. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. No, you're you're yes. Again, you're not wrong. Uh, but you're not right. Um, it's de- de- deceptively good mover is also shade. I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But Svitolina is a fascinating name to point out. And unfortunately, my uh, tennis abstracts being a bit difficult with me right now. But you look for Alina Svitolina, it is worth noting. She ranks fifth right now uh, in terms of total wins, trailing just Shabur, Sabalenka, Barty, Krejcikova. And you look for her that she was able to make the run through Chicago. I will forever remember third set, five-all tiebreaker. She had the backhand volley. It's a backhand volley she'll make 92 out of 100 times. And she yanked it wide, and that was the match. And just Svitolina has been playing that well, to your point, where to see her make a push uh, at Indian Wells, and she's had a week off uh, since the end of her run in Chicago, and that's part of the perks of the late Thursday start of the Thursday start of this event. And you know, it is worth noting to your point, she's got semifinal points to defend. Those Indian Wells points are finally coming off the board, and that's why she's a fascinating name to pick out. But for me, the one I have my eye on is Belinda Bencic, who's currently sitting at 17 uh, in the race to the year in finals. That's about uh, 500, come on, plus four, uh, 589 points behind, excuse me, 
489 points behind Own Jabour and uh, obviously the gap a little bit closer between her and Elisa Mertens. What's been so fascinating to me is just watching Belinda Bencic chase events down the home stretch of the season. And of course, she's got some serious Indian Wells points to defend uh, next week as well. But you look for Belinda Bencic since the U.S. Open. She went to Luxembourg, played uh, the event there, makes the quarterfinals before or wins a match before getting knocked out by Samsonova. Uh, but Samsonova was freaking lights out in that match. She then goes and plays Ostrava the next week. Beat Cerebez Tormo before getting knocked out by the eventual champion Annette Conteve. She goes to Chicago, plays two more matches there before having to retire. And obviously was a oh, she suffered the knee injury right in in the Chicago. That's what I'm forgetting here. Yeah, that. that's an interesting element of the Chicago tournament was the players who were sort of not looking to completely go all out necessarily yeah. because they know they have Indian Wells on the line. I think. Benchich in a normal week maybe would have just played through that match uh, yeah. against uh, Rybakina and wouldn't it wouldn't have retired. Um, same thing with Von Drusva and then even Rybakina herself pulling those uh, yeah, walkovers exactly. and retirements. I mean, they all want to be healthy for Indian Wells. Um, so the fact that again Muguruza and Jabor left everything on the on the court is that much more impressive. But I think even the Svitolina loss to Jabor is sort of like, do I kill myself trying to figure out Jabor right now, or do I kind of just feel confident. I got up 4-1. I'm, you know, I'm riding this win streak in Chicago. Maybe I'll just, you know, <laughs> pack it in. <laughs> yeah, but it's worth noting for Benchich just how excellent she's been. Uh, it's really since the start of the grass court season. And of course, that started for her with a final in Berlin where she was knocked off again by Samsonova. And then, you know, she loses in Eastbourne to Golubic, who was obviously exceptional. Now, it wasn't the best Wimbledon for her, but wins the Olympics quarterfinals Cincinnati, quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Belinda Bencic is starting to play her best once again, and I just think a slow hard court for her in particular, if she's healthy, if the knee's all right. You know, she ranks 47th amongst the top 50 players as a returner. It's very streaky. It's very much, you know, she's playing one speed, and when it's landing, she's going to give you fits. But I do, I just, I love the confidence she plays with as well, and this is one of my unquantifiable theories, but I think when you've been the best in the world at something, there's just a confidence you receive and you carry that confidence with you for the rest of your life. The point I always turn to is Steve Johnson in big moments. There was a point for Stevie Johnson where he was the best college tennis player in the world. Now that's a small section of humans, of course. But when you're the best at something in the world, you just get a confidence in those big moments. You're like, yeah, but I've been the best before. I've faced pressure. And I think uh, I think for Benchich, who was the best junior in the world for 14, 15, 16 years old and had all of this success before getting injured early in her career. I think when she finds that confidence and gets on a streak like she's on now, she's really, really difficult to beat because she is one of those players who just plays so firmly on her terms and goes down swinging. And I just like these conditions for her. I like this surface. I think if she's healthy, she can make a nice run here at Indian Wells. Yeah, all that said, I was I was really not impressed with how she handled that match against Raducanu. I mean, a lot of it felt yeah. just that she tactically just didn't have it. And I was I really yeah. did think looking at that, going back to the USF quarterfinal, I remember looking at the draw and feeling, well, I'm going to be happy with, you know, like whoever wins is like a phenomenal mm -hmm. story for tennis. And I remember thinking that not really putting tremendous amount of stock in either Raducanu or Fernandez. Maybe I would have felt differently because those were just so unexpected. But just looking at, you know, the players who remain, I was like, this was such this was such an opportunity for Svitolina, for Benchich, for Sabalenka, for even Pliskova, for Sakari to, you know, 
win a major tournament, not really putting again that much into the teens, but the teens showed up. And in that tough moment, that 4-3 game against Benchage, it was Raducanu injecting that extra pace and sort of breaking Benchage's spirit. And now was that a factor of just having played so much tennis, coming from the Olympics, the emotional letdown of that? You know, does she need to get back up? I do agree that the surface is, is going to favor Benchich as well, that, you know, she will be able to get that extra ball back. Maybe, you know, that backhand from Raducanu doesn't land quite as um, mm-hmm. as sizzlingly in the desert as it would uh, in New York. But yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, I think she has a tremendous pedigree, tremendous amount of self-belief and confidence that, yes, she is, she belongs in, on mm-hmm. the stage and has always sort of carried herself as such injury. I mean, you talked about Muguruza. I think Benchich often feels that she is the best player in the world whenever she steps on court, regardless of how she's feeling or playing. So, um, yeah, th- definitely one to watch there. And the fact that she wasn't, um, that she listened to her body and didn't play through Chicago gives me hope that she will be healthy uh, heading into Indian Wells. Benchich has main character energy, right? Where yes. she's like, no, 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 yeah. I, I am the story of this show. Yeah. And you look at it, it was semifinals for her and Dean Wells in 2019. She beat Osaka. She beat Pliskova, beat, you know, Alexandrova during that stretch as well. It was a really good result for her. But I also think that's part of why we saw her play so much since the U.S. Open is she had those points to defend. And to Belinda Benchich's credit, she's done a pretty good job of defending those points. She's up to eighth right now in the live rankings. Now, of course, points will, you know, semifinal points will come off the board, but it's not an Andrescu situation where you look for Beyonce Not till November, I'll note. The yeah, points. as well. Yeah. But, but it's worth noting, you know, again, even if she only gets round of 16 or let's say – I, I really, round of 16 would be nice because you learn, lose round of 32. That's not great. Uh, but she can get it to round of 16. That's enough points, which at a minimum keeps her in the top 20. And top 20 is really, really where you want to be right now in terms of uh, WTA rankings because of just the depth right now. You know, players, you just don't want to face a top 20 opponent early in a Masters event if you want to make a deep run. And so she's done a really good job of that down the home stretch of the season, needed to find her best form. She's done so. But so those are two names. Svitolina, who again right now currently uh, I believe sits in 12th in the race if you include Osaka and Barty and whatever. But you look for Svitolina. She trails Elisa Mertens by fewer than 100 points. And so you know that's really just a one-win gap. Benchich a little bit further. She's going to need a Mertens to lose early and probably win a match, maybe two matches more to uh, surpass her. I mean, we haven't talked about Mertens. We haven't talked about Pavlichenkova. For Mertens, it's just – I sent – Okay, <laughs> I was uh, I was texting with I, I won't say who, but I texted someone. And I said, "Do you think it's an appropriate tweet for me to say Marketa von Drusova is going to make a, a great Elisa Mertens someday on tour?" And they were like, Ooh. "Yeah," and they were like, "They're like, no, don't tweet that." And I was like, "No, but I mean that like I mean that in a, a positive connotation. Like I just think von Drusova is going to be." alive in everything like just pencil her in Marketa von Drusova is going to be such a tough out physically over the next five six seven seasons that much like Mertens they're just they're both always in the hunt right and do they have the biggest weapons to overwhelm opponents no but again all this is to say Elisa Mertens maybe hasn't had a spectacular season but it's you know chalk it up another solid result for her. You look for Mertens overall on the year thirty two and seventeen. That thirty two number uh, all in WTA tour levels. So I'd have to filter out some of the names here, but that's you know a top twenty number again. She's what is it? It's like every third round at a Grand Slam since whatever it may be forever since forever. Um, 
I don't know. What are your thoughts on her entering? Uh, I mean, she is right now, assuming no Osaka, assuming no Barty, she's in very good position to get that final spot. Yeah, I mean, the big difference between Mertens and Von Drusseva is that while, yes, I do see that they're both, they do have a, a degree of consistency. I mean, Von Drusseva is stepping over the line more frequently. I yeah. think that's sort of been the revelation about Mertens over the last few years is that while she is tremendously consistent and does show up and does make deep runs, there is a ceiling for her. I mean, even that match against Andreescu at the US Open in 2019 plays a really good first set, sort of fades away in three sets. I mean, that's 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 not what you want to see from somebody um, aiming to, you know, do better at these major tournaments. Really got um, destroyed by Sabalenka at the US Open this year. Didn't really have any answers for that. I mean, and that's a, that is a rivalry that Sabalenka has really figured out um, mm-hmm. over her former doubles partner. I think, you know, when you think of Mertens, it's funny to think that she could potentially make the top eight because I feel like, yeah, it's possible that some of the, you know, an amazing dichotomy is Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova and Elisa Mertens, the ultimate dichotomy of pure talent and hard work. And yes, it is very possible that talent will not show up and the hard work of Elisa Mertens will be rewarded by Guadalajara and she would absolutely deserve it. But I do think given her limits and given her ceiling, she does need the help of other players not showing up. I mean, I think they, I mean, another sport I've covered is figure skating and they do talk about certain athletes like that. Yes. If they play their best and if they perform their best and everybody else doesn't show up, they can win a medal. And I think that's been sort of the mark on Mertens until she proves that she can really step up and win these big matches at major tournaments. And Indian Wells is yet another opportunity to do it. And she'll certainly put herself in the position. I know Joe Conta for many years has always talked about being grateful for just another opportunity to play really great tennis. And there have been no shortage of opportunities for Mertens to do that thus far. Mm-hmm. And you look for Elisa Mertens, worth noting, she's fallen out of the top 25 club. She is not one of the 14 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now she's like 27th in hold percentage, so she's still pretty damn close. But no, it is worth noting that someone like a Pavlochenkova, someone like uh, I suppose a Belinda Benchich, you probably like their best a little bit more still than the best of Elisa Mertens. One player we have not talked about, I mean two players who kind of fall into this category who are very much alive, Coco Goff and Emma Raducanu, who would be representing the teenage generation of WTA talent. I want to start with Raducanu. Fourth round Wimbledon, final of the 125K. She made a couple of quarterfinals, I believe, at the, I think there was one in Landisville. I think there was one maybe in Nottingham this year as well, and uh, obviously hasn't played since winning the U.S. Open. Now, again, you win a Grand Slam, you're automatically in the hunt for the year-end finals. That said, I don't want to say do It's such a, like, a blunt question. Well, what I want to say is do you want to see Emma Raducanu at the WTA finals? I guess that, that that is the question. Just we've seen five like tournaments from her. The sample size is still so small. Do you want to see her thrown uh, to the wolves against you know the seven other best of the best? I'm kind of more excited to see Raducanu at an Indian Wells or honestly playing a 500 like Ostrava than I think I would be right now at a Guadalajara. At the same time, like the 18 year old going from the U.S. Open to the year end finals. If, if you're pro-tennis, you want tennis to get the narrative, you want Raducanu to be a part of every big event down the home stretch as possible. And so it's it's a tough balance for me. Like, I'm, I I know this is stu- I don't know if I want to see Raducanu. Like, I kind of want to give these other eight players who have been a part of the narrative all year long their shine in Guadalajara. At the same time, I mean, if Raducanu is one of the best, she'll play her way into this event, and it might be undeniable. We may not have a choice. We'll just see her there. 
Well, I mean, the thing of it is, is she's clearly gunning for it based on yeah. her schedule. She's not, you know, taking her foot off the gas. She's, you know, <laughs> to continue this this pedal narrative that I'm pushing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pedal pushing. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm that <laughs> a thousand right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, to not want her to do it when she's trying to do it is kind of a rough one. It's a rough yeah. uh, thing to hope for because then you're hoping that she doesn't do well over the next yeah i guess and to clarify great. it's not that i don't want her to do it it's that my desire to see some of these other players rewarded for their seasons is just over my desire to see her t- tested against the best of the best at the same time saying that out loud i feel like an idiot i'm like what are you saying alex like that's so stupid like of course you want radicanu at the year-end finals yeah it's 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 just I mean, if it was me, I mean, you're coming off of the, this tremendous windfall at the U.S. Open. You're you're already being tagged with all of these, you know, next best thing, global name, all the things that none of the lessons we learned from Naomi Osaka. We're just putting all of them onto Emma Raducanu. Um, and, you know, this is a player who coming into U.S. Open, we were questioning her, you know, her ability to step up at these big tournaments. I mean, had, you know, difficulty breathing at Wimbledon, you know, I know, I believe had some dizziness after she won the U.S. Open and sort of like the rush of the, um, the rush of the triumph, having all these post, you know, tournament obligations, you know, I think had to sit down and have something to eat, you know, so I think that's, this is someone, you know, you need a strong team around this sort of player guiding them and helping them make the right decisions. She doesn't have a full-time coach right now. For me, it would have been an opportunity to be like, just pack it in for the year, just take off, do your preseason and come back. I mean, it's sort of like the Bianca Andreescu model, which is like only show up when you're ready to play peak tennis. And obviously sure. there are there are drawbacks to that. Obviously we've seen Bianca, you know, not play enough, start to lose. And now we're in like this sort of death cycle where she's constantly not feeling 100% confident. But I mean, we've seen the best players of, when you think of the best players of the last 15 years, Serena Williams, Kim Clijsters, Venus, you know, even Muguruza, these are players who did not play a lot of, tennis week in week out they had they showed up to these big tournaments played peak tennis and succeeded and so i think with emma this is clearly a goal of the team to make the finals if she doesn't make it that's a rough off season for her where people are thinking mm-hmm. well what happened she won the u.s open and then she couldn't even qualify for Guadalajara. you know this this wta finals at Guadalajara. of course the uh <laughs> the narrative around that like this the, again the prestige of being the top eight player of the year will be totally lost on those who will be reporting on this story about how she failed to make this this random tournament in Mexico that no one's ever heard of because it's hasn't been in Guadalajara ever before. Um, so I think it's a rough one for her. And I hope that, you know, the one thing that really is in her favor is that phenomenal technique. It's just so sound. We are not relying on a hitchy service beforehand that, you know, that blows your mind, you know, 40% of the time and the other 60% of the time it's hitting a back fence. I mean, this is just really clean, pristine technique that I hope has been maintained since the US Open. Mm-hmm. I hope she's been doing, you know, the practicing that she needs to to stay in, in peak shape. And I hope on the team, the decision has been made. You are ready to play this tournament. You should go play it. And I hope it's not just a push to make this, this WK finals. I, I hope the best for her is I guess what I'm trying to say. It is fascinating to hear. There is some value, I feel like, in telling a young player, hey, only play when you're ready to play your best right now because the other results, the other data, like it's just not worth it. We're not gaining anything valuable from that experience. And talking to the head coach, uh, head coach, sorry, the coach for Jensen Brooksby, uh, Joseph Gilbert, 
he made that a huge point with his juniors. Like, I'm not going to have you go play some random national level one event in the 18s just because you're number one in the country and you think you should be there. That's stupid. Like, why would we do that? Why would we put you in a position to fail uh, this young, this early when you're this just green uh, in your career? And I think that's a very – Zach Svita. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like someone Although, who's really only shown up and played, you know, very little tournaments over his career. And when he shows up, plays – Really impressive tennis. Counterpoint. I know ATP. Yeah, yeah. You know I'm gonna be. Uh, he got beat up a little bit on the challenger level in 2019, which was. But another guy who like 2020 kind of turned pro, banking on the fact, well, I have the 2020 Kalamazoo to get another U.S. Open wild card, so I don't have to worry. Like I'm better than these juniors and. We saw him at Kalamazoo this year where he literally cleaned the field's clock. And, like, yes, I, I, that's a very good point as well. And, you know, that said, anyone who writes the narrative she won the U.S. Open but didn't win Guadalajara is stupid. And you should stop following that person because that's just a stupid, stupid narrative. I agree it's going to be said, but it's stupid. And those people don't understand tennis. That said— I think I've already reversed my position. It would be fine if Radicano <laughs> makes the WTA finals. I have no qualms uh, with that fact. I also think we haven't talked enough about Coco Goff being in the hunt. I mean, the 17-year-old, 17-year-old, and I did this whole history of teenage success on the WTA Tour. You can follow the series on our YouTube channel. You can hear my full podcast on the Great Shot Podcast feed. Uh, so I'm not going to repeat myself. But at 17 years old, Goff is on pace to not by total wins, if you go by those numbers, but by percentages, to do a lot of similar things to some of the best teenagers. Maybe not the the Hingis uh, and Celis and Serena and Sharapova tier, but that Kleisters, Enin, Capriati tier. Goff's on pace to match a lot of those things. And again, she is fewer than a, or 113 points behind Elisa Mertens. If I told you Goff goes to the same round of this event as Svitolina, the same round as Pavlochenkova, the same round as Pagula, does a round better than Mertens, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, I guess she's got to do a round better than Pavlochenkova and Svitolina as well. But like, if she makes quarterfinals, those other make round of 16s very much in play like she could qualify for the year-end finals at 17 years old one quarterfinal at a grand slam this season but again another player who's just racked up a bunch of different wins and you look for coco golf on the year in terms of just what she's been able to do 32 and 15 overall 2021 was a step forward for the 17 year old and you know yeah her shine i suppose may have been stolen a bit by aradakanu in new york by what leila fernandez was able to do there but i still think it's yeah aradakanu is probably now the teenager to watch golf is still second like she's still done more than tossin she's still done more than the rest of these six teenagers right now in the top 100 if you go by the list and just you know the top the number of top and she's had more opportunities i suppose than those but she's made the most of those opportunities is what i'm trying to say david and if she makes the year on finals that's a nice little response to well i see your u.s open title and bravo to you radicanu i was consistent enough throughout the year to be a top eight player like that's a I like that from Goff, and I, I could absolutely see her make a run here at Indian Wells after a disappointing loss in New York to Sloan. First of all, I apologize for the degradation in my audio quality. I went from Radicani to Fernandez as my, uh, <laughs> my mic died. But, um, I, mean, I mean, Coco Goff has had a really, I mean, talk about a change in narrative perception from Roland Garros to the U.S. Open, looking at looking like someone who could potentially win Roland Garros, just a greedy competitor, was serving well loses to Krishkova, comes to Wimbledon, looks really confident, then 
really doesn't put up much of resistance to Kerber. Now getting surpassed, at least you know, in the in the recency bias category by your Radicanos, your Fernandezes. And I think people are really starting to look at both she's got all this experience, she's a great competitor, she's got some phenomenal athleticism, what is not clicking. And I think people are really starting to hone in on the purple bot forehand as really not being the shot that it needs to be to make the difference in these major rallies. I mean, I think I mentioned this. I think I mentioned this to you in the last podcast. I mean, the, the, the juxtaposition of Coco Goff's forehand against Sam Stozer's forehand in the doubles final really was quite telling. And I think that, um, where was I going with this? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's... yeah, I think, no, I and mean, it's just, I think there's just a lot of things that Goff still needs to work on. And yes. I think that, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough position for her to be in because now people are looking at her like, well, why aren't you, why haven't you, achieved these heights that that some of your younger cohort are achieving and i think for her it's 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 really about looking ahead to talk about some of the really needs in off season to kind of rebuild and and, and retool you know i think you think of that's where i was going I was, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Anna Kornikova, someone who Ooh. came on the scene really great tennis clean but just didn't have and i think nick Balotelli even gave that quote a few years ago just that Anna Kornikova beforehand was never developed in the way that he would have liked to to really make it into the, the point ending weapon that it needed to be and I think Coco kind of potentially falls into that category as well if she doesn't really start to make some some tactical changes and technical changes I should say no I think your microphone dying is a sign by the way that I should probably wrap things up so shout out to the tennis universe as always for showing us but to your point a it hurts my feelings because Anna Kornkova grew up at the training at the same club in southeast michigan that i did shout out sports club of west bloomfield and yeah you see that photo i mean i it's funny because i maybe that's it it's just the cornicova story was so like everyone knew who cornicova was when i was growing up because she was from our area and it's like hey it's cornicova um anyways that's a story we'll do uh we'll do an oral history on cornicova yeah, different time um but no I, I think that's a really fair point i will say i think physically she's made progress this year like she can as quick as she was at 15 16 years old I think there's an element now on the serve and just her ability to – the fluidity in the outer thirds and across surfaces where, I mean, she's going to be a nightmare just throughout the prime of her career. She could just the, – the the stress she can put on you throughout the course of the match and make it a track meet. I just – good luck matching that physicality throughout the course of her career. The backhand remains a weapon. First serve, extraordinarily impressive. You're right. The forehand can be overwhelmed by pace, but again – 17 years old still. Goff is 13th in the race. Now, someone we didn't talk about, Jess Pagula, who's been outstanding this season. You can pencil her into the quarterfinals of just about every major hardcore event she's played this year. Absolutely a run available for her. You could argue the player in the best form entering Indian Wells is 16th in the race. Annette Conteve coming off of the title in Ostrava, coming off of the title she won in Cleveland. Uh, she three, third three blah, 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 leave that all in three set loss for her uh, to Iga Swiatek in the third round of the U.S. Open. Outside of that, though, she hasn't lost in like a month. Um, Kerber playing well. Bedosa, we'll see. I do just want to say the last player I'd throw into that mix, and I think Rabakina could, quite, if she's healthy, like the hard hitting she's played, I think she's like 20 and 10 since the start uh, of Roland Garros. She's been uh, really, really impressive down the home stretch of this season. But Daniel Collins has lost like five times in the past two months. 
and a Danielle Collins slow outdoor hardcore Indian Wells run to the title where, like, she just beats everyone she has to beat in the round she needs them to lose by. And all of a sudden, she finds herself in eighth place in the race to the year-end finals. Of all of the long shots, I mean, Rabakina is the obvious one, but Danielle Collins is the name I circle. Like, I really do think there's a world where she wins Indian Wells and ends up in Guadalajara. I think she has been that good of late. Your thoughts on, you know, again, those final names, Pagula, Conteve, uh, the Collinses, Rabakinas, who have been playing extraordinarily well of late, have momentum on their side, but maybe see the larger point gap of that group. Who are you watching? Got to go with the idea of Collins winning Indian Wells, first of all. I mean, that's just, that's too, that's too good to pass up. I mean, I, I admit going into the U.S. Open, I was very ready for a Danielle Collins fortnight. I was ready yeah. for the theatrics in front of the crowd. I was ready for all of that, and it didn't happen lost a late night match to arena sadling i felt seemed very tense the whole tournament just like really focused and really wasn't in the sort of lightness that you would expect from someone who had every reason to feel confident um and happy heading into the tournament and lost that wacky match to von Drusel that she probably should have won um in chicago so i think there's there's perhaps something clicking for her i think maybe she, in that sense she might be that much closer than a Jess Pagula, who maybe is is consistent, but perhaps in a more Mertens category where she's still looking to make that leap or making that, like, if she's, if, if Collins is a B, then Pagula's like a B minus, we're trying to, like, edge up into that A minus A category. So I think, like, that's sort of where we, where we are right now with those two. Um, I mean, I just, I have to go back to Selena because I'm just, like, yeah. I, look, I go back to that quarterfinal. I've never really felt, I, I, I didn't expect to feel anything about the results because I just thought that, you know whoever wins is going to be it's going to be a great story and my heart just broke for Svitolina in that semi, in that quarterfinal it was such an opportunity for her to finally like shove off all of that criticism and and stuff that has been put upon her shoulders the last couple of years you know you, you can't get it done in the major and this was such a golden opportunity for her to do it as you said heading to net at five all I was thinking you know good for you you are taking control of your destiny and then she just duffed that <laughs> just think oh no like this is never going to happen for you and obviously so many great things have happened for her both personally and professionally last couple months winning that bronze medal at the olympics getting married having that big lock on her finger good for you Elena Svitolina but just (laughs) it's a rough one and you know and and having been there in Singapore when she did run the table in 2018 and win that title I kind of think that this is this is something achievable for her whereas you know the, the grand slams have been their own Sphinx. So I, 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 she is the one that I am most confident in. And obviously, as a former champion, it's a, maybe it's a, a totally bold prediction to be like the former champion's going to qualify. But I don't know. I think that that's the one that I'm that I'm really looking for. I mean, obviously, the Americans, the Brits, all all in with a shot at this. I, I think no matter how we, I do kind of think when the dust settles, we are going to end up with a very intriguing top eight. I think right now it still looks a bit confused because you know we are wondering if Barty and Osaka are going to play how does that look when you look at number 11 and 12 but I think by the end when when the dust settles and and that iconic trophy is taken I think it's going to be quite iconic for all kinds of reasons well then let's final thing predictions right now we know Sabalenka Krejcikova Pliskova in I'm assuming no Barty Osaka by the way in this I'm saying Sakari's in I'm saying Muguruza's in I'm saying Shviantek's in. I'll go Jabour 7. I'm going to go Conteve 8. It's, it's against my better judgment, 
But this has been a Conteve podcast for quite a bit of time. I just think her level, I think it's clicked. I think you have to be really freaking good to beat Annette Conteve right now. And I'm just, I like these conditions for her. I like her form of late. Uh, I regret it already, but I'm going Conteve yeah, 8. I, I remain deeply unconvinced. Like, I'm really happy for her. I think it's great that she's not working with Dimitri Tursanov. Maybe this is like a, a new plateau for her, but I want to see it at a big tournament. Ostrava, with as many exclamation points as you can add to it, is still not <laughs> a WTA 1000. I want to see her get a big win at a big tournament. I was saying on grandstand when she lost the match to Strong Track, and I had no confidence that she was going to figure that one out. And sure enough, she did not. So I think, you know, with all of the weapons, having watched her since she was a junior and always having been impressed by the raw talent, you want to see her step over the finish line. And so in a good sort of happenstance, in order to make the WTA final, she has to have a really good result at Indian Wells. So I think that that's sort of the best of all possible worlds where she can earn her way to this final and really kind of shut the door on me and shut me up for good and anyone else who thought that she didn't have that intangible it factor to, to make it into the finals. That said, yeah, I think Shabor has kind of done what she's needed to do. And then I think... God, Just make this Fidelina says, pick. Come on. Oh, no, my head says Raducanu, though, I have to be honest. Like, I, I hope that if she is there and if she is playing and if she is consistent and confident, this is going to, to work out for her. But my heart, my heart goes for Svitolina. Can I change my pick to Rabakina? Um, no, I'm, I'm sticking with Conte. Yeah, locked yeah, in, lock it in folks. <laughs> lock it in. Well, then, with all that said, uh, obviously, Kanye, they know they can read you all things Tennis Channel, Tennis.com. But any any juicy tidbits for us over the next few days as we prepare for Indian Wells? And as always, where can we follow you on Twitter? Follow me on, tw- on Twitter and Instagram when it is not down at DKTNNS. I got, we got a good team down in Indian Wells covering all the action. Editorially, socially, videologically. I know we got some bag checks in the movie film to be excited about. But yeah, we're really excited for the next couple of weeks and, and hoping for a dramatic, thrilling conclusion to the 2021 season. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is always thrilling when we have you on the podcast, David. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Be safe, be healthy, and I'm sure we will chat again soon. Especially when we're short. It doesn't matter. Well. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com and Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. A huge thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. As you listeners know, if he's writing it, I'm reading it. You should as well. One of the best in the business. By the way, I do apologize for the audio quality at the end there. David apologized during the podcast, but again, that speaks to, I suppose, the quality of conversation we were having. We talked for so long that his microphone ended up giving out. Nevertheless, always appreciative of him giving us this sort of time. Of course, we will be previewing the Indian Wells men's portion of the field on tomorrow's show. Have a first-time guest joining us. Very excited for all of you listeners to hear that podcast. Of course, we're finding content day in, day out on the mini break. Plenty of challenger action to get all of us 
uh, ready for the tennis that starts in Indian Wells on Thursday. You guys can expect GSP Ace of the Day segments coming back throughout Indian Wells here on this show as well. So be on the lookout for that content moving forward, of course, rocking and rolling on our Cracked Interviews uh, podcast channel, rocking and rolling on our YouTube channel as well with our newest series, The History of Teenage Success on the WTA Tour. You can find all of that content on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to all of our shows wherever you listen to your podcast. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Flickner and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. With all that said, for our fantastic guests, David Kane, super producers, Flickner and Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 